You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're in this series called Grow. Everybody say it with me. Grow. Grow, right? We're not just beginning this this sermon series. We're actually beginning this year with this emphasis on growth. What does it mean to grow? What does it look like if we are regularly growing in our lives, spiritually speaking? And so last week, I shared with you this kids growth survey. Do you guys get a kick out of that? Am I the only one who feels insecure when I'm completing these? You know, let me read a couple more from you here, right? Basically, the doctors, the, the, the government, public health officials, they are giving you a picture of maturity. And so if you have a 36-month-old, here is what a 36-month-old child should be able, should be able to do, all right? Does your child make sentences that are three or four words long? When looking at a picture book, does your child tell you what is happening or what action is taking place in the picture? Does your child jump with both feet? Does your child walk upstairs using only one foot on each stairs? Does your child stand on one foot for about one second? While standing, does your child throw a ball overhand, elbow raised, by raising his arm to shoulder height and throwing the ball forward? 36 months. Right? And so they give, these, they give us this picture, they give us these marks of maturity. And so we were drawing a metaphor from this saying, what would it be like if we could come to the scriptures and say, God, what does a 36-month-old Christian look like? What, what does a maturing disciple, what are the, the categories that we can measure ourselves? What, what are some categories by, that we can stand next to, biblically speaking, and say, God, am I growing? Am I growing? And so this survey, it gave us six categories of growth. And so we have identified seven traits of growth in the life of a Christian. And so I shared this with you last week, but... But over the week, as I was thinking about this metaphor, I realized how unnatural it is. You see, my child, your children, when they are thinking about growing up, how many of you know they don't have a survey? You know what I mean? Like when my son, when when he's growing up, he's not saying, Dad, I think this week I would like to jump eight inches instead of four feeling froggy, I'm going to leap this week, right? He's not looking at some artificial rubric. This is what we use from the outside to measure growth. But what does the person growing think about? What do you think about when you're growing? Do you think about some artificial metric? Or are you like my son? This is Everett Alden Cassis as a baby, right? And you go, man, he's so cute. But if I told you that he was six years old, you would go, there is something seriously wrong with this child. Everybody goes, aw, and they go, he's seven. You go, aw, some Benjamin Button situation going on here, right? And so my child, he is growing into a mature young lad, right? He sits in my lap, and he rubs the hair on my arm, and he goes, daddy, will I have hair on my arms one day? Right? I go, you will, son. 
And then he touches my face and he goes, Daddy, will I have hair on my face one day? I go, yeah. And he looks at my hairy legs and he goes, Daddy, will I have hair on my legs one day? I said, you will. And he goes, I don't want to grow up. And he runs away, right? <laughs> He's like, Mommy, no! He goes, I want to be a kid forever. He goes, Mommy doesn't have hair on her face. I go, I know, son, because we're men, right? My child, when he thinks about maturity, when he thinks about growing up, he's not thinking about a rubric. He says, I want to look like my father. Friends, this is what growth is about. These traits that we're identifying, these marks of maturity are not some artificial rubric that we're going to measure ourselves against one day. We are saying with all of our hearts, we want to look like our father in heaven. The more we grow as a congregation, the more you grow as an individual follower of Jesus. This call to growth, this call to maturity is not some moralistic, be better. This is a call to say, hey, we want to look more like our father. And that's his plan. This is his plan. And so week one, we talked about how the family of God prioritizes scripture. Mature followers of Jesus are putting the roots of their lives deep into the soil and water of God's word. We want to grow as disciples who know the word, who prioritize the word, who run to the scriptures day and night because we know that here we find life. And so today I'm excited to share with you trait number two. Trait number two. And in order to show this with you, share this with you, we have to go back to ground zero. All right? Ground zero, Jesus Christ has just ascended to heaven. And as he's ascending, he says to his disciples, wait, I know you're going on mission. I know I'm about to send you out of here. But before you do, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. Don't start the missions movement until I send the spirit from on high. And they're like, what does that mean? And he goes away. He ascends into heaven. They're sitting there. They're praying. They're waiting. Boom. The Lord detonates the movement of Jesus' followers. He sends the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is now in the world, and we realize that God is not just present in a body. He's present in his body, the church, and we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And so as we go back to ground zero, as we see what this church is like, we see that they start identifying themselves not as individual followers— but as a family of followers. We see at ground zero that these, these Christians, they, they start to refer to each other as brother and sister, and they're talking about their father in heaven, and they're just doing things in such a way that the world takes notice. There's this growing sense of community. Not as a social club, but as a family of faith. And they start living such a communal lifestyle that heads are turning. And so today, just for a few moments, I want to reveal to you three traits that we see in the scriptures, three traits of this gospel-centered community. And here's my prayer. Here's why I want to share this with you. Number one, I want you to understand it. I want you to leave today saying, I have a better understanding of how God designed the family to be. Great! I want you to get it in your head. But not only do I want you to understand it, I want you to start living a life that is actively cultivating it. Cultivating. Any gardeners in here? 
Yes, okay. I'm not. I don't know why I'm raising my hand, but I see you. I see you, green thumbs. Okay, you understand that this garden doesn't just happen by accident, does it? Does this happen by accident? No way. This takes a lot of time and intentionality. There is a skilled person who has devoted their time to cultivating it, to creating an environment where this can blossom. Community doesn't just happen by accident. This trait that we're praying that we want to see in our church doesn't just happen. We don't just sit back and hope. We want to be people who cultivate it. We can be intentional. We can implement practices. We can live a life as God's people that when we see other members in the family of faith, we say, hey, don't hate, cultivate. Look at your neighbor and say, don't hate, cultivate. Cultivate. Are you guys ready to cultivate some community? You got your Bibles open? You got that you version? You guys scrolling? You got your notes? Paper and pencil? My people, old school. Here we go. I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and then we'll go back and break it down. You guys ready? All right, here we go. This is God's word for his church this morning. It begins like this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. Father, as we open up your word, would you open up our hearts? Help us to understand your word. Help us to look more like Jesus as we apply your word. And may we love you more, Father. We give you this time in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. All right, let's go back. Well, I want you guys to look at verse 42 and verse 46. We're gonna pull some things out of here, okay? So look what it says. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Jump down to 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The first thing we notice about God's community, the first thing we see about God's family is that it is marked by a relational spirituality. This is a relational spirituality. And so these followers of Jesus, they kind of had this practice. You can see them from a mile away. They, They did this thing where they would regularly get together with other followers of Jesus. Let's not assume that. That's, that's important to note. They're getting together with other followers of Jesus, and look what they did as they gathered. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. They came together for the express purpose of hearing from and learning from those who walked with Jesus. Jesus spent three years giving everything he had into these men, and now the next generation of disciples were sitting at their feet saying, teach me. 
See, you can understand why the scriptures are so important. The apostles understood that they needed to pass on what they had learned from the Savior. And so they wrote it down so that way subsequent generations could have it. So they said, let's come together and hear from those who were with Jesus. Let's understand the scriptures better. Let's grow as disciples. Let's unpack the gospel and understand its implications on our lives. Let's study. Let's talk about this. They were spiritual. You see, if they were to go to the movie theater, because they had those in Acts chapter 1, you got to go back. When they went to the movies, they were sitting back in the posture of a spectator, right? But they understood that when they come to temple, they were sitting forward, notebooks and pens out with the posture of a student. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You guys just sat up a little bit taller. I saw that. They were like, "Mm mm-hmm, student, right? They just licked their pen, right? They devoted themselves. They want to understand the scriptures. Not only that, look what else. They devoted themselves to the prayers. I love this. They said, let's get together for the express purpose of talking to our Father. Prayer just wasn't in transition. You know, like, hey, we're having a good time. Let's just, let's just end this thing with prayer. Like, prayer was not just the punctuation mark. Prayer was the event, not the transition. Let's devote some of our time together for turning our minds and our hearts upward and acknowledging, God, you're with us right now in this place. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Do you guys see it? At the center of this community, the thing that is bringing them together was their common faith. God's family is a deeply spiritual community. We've already talked about last week, friends, right? Like, we love God's word. We put a premium on the scriptures. Welcome to East Point Church. We want to know God. Welcome to East Point Church. We are a spiritual community. We are hungry, not for religious activity, but for genuine relationship with the creator of the universe. And so we devote ourselves to the teaching and to the prayers. Amen? A deeply spiritual community. But here's what's so beautiful about God's family. And here's where you guys, man, you think I'm preaching now. You ready for this? Not only are they a deeply spiritual community, they are a deeply relational community. Look what it says. In the same breath, right? Like you would think there's a hierarchy. We're doing spiritual things. And then if we have time, we can hang out. No, no, no. Same breath, same sentence. They are devoted to the teaching and, same verb, they're devoted to the fellowship koinonia, the lifestyle of partaking. They're doing life together. Same breath. In the same breath that we see prayers, we see that they're breaking bread together. In the same breath, friends, because in God's community, these things are intertwined. These things are inseparable. In God's family, we don't just share our faith. We share our food. We don't just share our faith. We share our food. We are committed to the teaching and we're committed to the table, right? We're committed to breaking out the, breaking down the word and we're committed to breaking out the plates and the utensils, right? We're committed to talking to our father in heaven and we're committed to chatting it up at the dinner table. Yes, we are spiritual, but we are relationally spiritual. 
we are deeply relational. We eat together. We devote ourselves to being in each other's homes. This is what they did. This was how they did community. Why? Like, why, why is that important? Why is the biblical author, why is the Holy Spirit giving us details about their social life? Like, surely that doesn't fit in, right? One of these things is not like the other. Why does he tell us about their social life and their spiritual life? Because it's one and the same. The Bible doesn't know of a Christian. The Bible doesn't know of a church that loves God but declines his family. You see, what the, what the authors, what, what the Spirit is giving us here is an understanding that every time we come together in relationship, every time we sit down at the table together, we are creating a visual aid of the gospel. Do you understand? Every time we sit down and we break out the chips and salsa at table and in unity and in love and affection, we are declaring with our lives that we who once were separated by sin, that we who once were so selfish that we couldn't even be, coexist in a garden together, that we who were so selfish, we see the first murder in Genesis, we're two pages in and we're killing each other. Every time we come together at the table, this is a powerful reminder that Jesus took care of the sin and selfishness that separate us. We come together in community, not so that we can be a social club and attract more people. No, because we are declaring the gospel. Because of what Jesus did for us, we can live and eat together in peace as brothers and sisters. We share a common meal because we share a common Savior. Eating is spiritual. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. This is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10.31. He goes, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. You can literally eat in a manner. You can be drinking in a manner. You can be partaking in a meal in such a way that God is glorified. Come on. I want to eat in a way that glorifies God. I want to drink in a way that highlights the goodness of the Lord. And how do we do that? Together. Together. Full dinner tables glorify God. Shared couches glorify the Savior. Because it's highlighting the one who died to bring us together. Jesus has replaced hostility and division with love and peace. And so East Point Church, get out there in each other's homes, on each other's couches, and let us receive our food with glad and generous hearts. Amen? They were devoted to this. This was a priority. They did this day by day. Look how intentional they were, right? It says here, devoted. Not like, I'm living my life, and then if I have time. No, this was a priority. They were devoted. They made this happen. It also says here, look, it says day by day. So that tells me that they didn't live with this understanding of faith that says, here's my normal life, and sometimes I leave my normal life to go have some spiritual experiences, and then I go back to normal life. No, no, 
day by day, they were living with an understanding of their identity as a member of the family. Not a day went by where they didn't understand, I'm a member of God's household. I belong to God's family. This was a priority. They were devoted to it. Not only were they devoted, but guys, check it out. They were smart about it. They actually thought in detail, how can we make this happen? And so we see in Acts chapter 2 earlier that 3,000 people were added to the church. 3,000 people became followers of Jesus, went public with their faith through baptism, and now, standing room only. If 3,000 people strolled into the YMCA, we'd have a fire code issue, first of all, I suppose, right? But, I mean, that'd be wild, right? But you see, they understood that if there is going to be that many people, we have to be intentional with how we do community. And so we see that they continued to attend temple together. They continued to meet in the large congregation, 3,000 people getting together to hear the apostles' teaching and to pray, to do baptism and to take communion. They still gathered with the large congregation. Are you prioritizing the large congregation? Do you understand that God's family meeting here every Sunday is not a take it or leave it if I have extra time, but that this is part of what God has called us to do? They did. And so they gathered in the temple every week. Shabbat don't stop on Sabbath time, right? But look what else they did. Not only did they gather in the temple, they broke bread in their homes. You see, they understood that in a congregation of 3,000 people, they're not going to know everybody's name let alone everybody's story. They know that in 3,000 people, it is so easy to hide. It is so easy to just blend in and not really engage with the one another's of Scripture. And so they said, hey, not only will we meet the congregation, but we need a smaller pocket of belonging. We need, we need a more intimate circle of connection. We need like extended family, spiritually speaking. Here's our 18 to 25 people that we can fit in our home without going crazy. And then it gets even wilder as you read through the scriptures. Not only did they have the worshiping community, not only did they have the extended family, they also had this, this intimate mentorship going on where ladies took the ladies and men took the men. And it says older women teach younger women, older men teach younger men. And, and they had their three to four that they can fit at the coffee table and say, teach me how to follow Jesus. Do you see how intentional they were with community? See, in America, we talk about, I go to church. And they're like, what does that mean? I'm a part of community, and I have that community manifested in my life on multiple levels. Whew. It's not the norm, is it? They're like, man, I've never heard this before. Like, I thought that if I just go to church one to two times a month, that I'm like killing it. But this is more than a call to go to church. This is a call to make gathering with God's people a lifestyle. This is a call to live out your faith in such a way that when other people see you, they go, wow, that is a relational spirituality. A relational spirituality. Let's continue. Let's look at the second trait of this community. He says in verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The second trait that we see here in God's family, they are marked by a radical generosity. A radical 
generosity. You see, the gospel message, it, it doesn't belong to one demographic. The gospel is so beautiful. The, the hope is so transcendent that it crosses cultural and ethnic lines. It crosses geographical boundaries. It transcends gender differences. It even transcends socioeconomic disparity. And so we're not surprised to find out that in God's family, as the gospel is increasing, there are going to be people who have need. There are people who are in different places when it comes to earthly goods and different backgrounds and different family history. This is to be expected. But here's what's unexpected. The way that God's family responds to those among them who have needs. They respond to the disparity. They respond to the lack in their midst with an attitude that says, no matter, what I have is yours. If you need it and I have it, I freely give it. And so they were living in such a way that they had all things in common. Those who shared each other's faith shared each other's burdens. And so we see the first garage sale in biblical history. They start to sell off some of their possessions. They're going, I don't need a third blender. Let's just sell it, you know. They go, you know, I have that plot of land that's been sitting dormant for 25 years. We're not farming it anytime soon. Let's sell it. And they start selling off their extra possessions to be able to contribute to a pot. And then from that pot, the apostles begin distributing the proceeds to all. They are cheerfully and willingly giving up some of their wants for the privilege of taking care of their family's needs. This wasn't just a token gift. This is radical generosity. And it gets even sweeter because as you follow the story of Scripture, as you begin to go through the pages, you see that the, there's a level of development. There's a level of intentionality and infrastructure that would make some of you administrative types drool, okay? You get to chapter 3 and 4 and you realize there's actually a fund set up now that they're bringing to the apostles and that they're distributing it. You get to chapter 6, and you see that, man, just the practical administration of these funds, it becomes so time-intensive that the elders are becoming distracted from the teaching and the prayers. So they literally create a new leadership position in the church to manage these funds. You continue down the list, you get to 1 Timothy, and we see that local churches, not only do they still have the fund, they've created guidelines to make sure that nobody's taking advantage of these funds. They've created guidelines and boundaries to make sure that nobody was being enabled in their bad habits. Why do I show you the infrastructure and, the, and the, how uh, intentional they were? Simply to prove this point. They took this very seriously. Radical generosity. They understood that God was calling them to make this such a staple trait of their community that they were not just sitting back and hoping it happened. I hope the church is being generous. I hope people are being moved by the Spirit's help. They go, no, we're going to organize this thing so that we can intentionally catalyze radical generosity. They took Paul's words, Galatians 6.10, seriously. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. 
Let us love everyone in our community. Let us do two for Talbot for everyone around us. Let us do good works to all of our neighbors. But when it comes to our own, make sure we have each other's back. Make sure we take care of those who belong to us. We take care of each other. Of each other. And so where did this generosity come from? Well, they must have just been a naturally philanthropic group. They must have just been really kind in their hearts, right? Maybe that was just really cool and couth in that culture where they just, that's what they do. They just sell all their possessions and help each other. No, it's not normal today. It wasn't normal then. Where did this impulse of generosity come? They were followers of Jesus. And Jesus' spirit lives in them. And so what you're seeing here is evidence of his grace, not evidence of their own goodness. What you are seeing here, friends, is a group of people who are starting to look more like their father in heaven. The generous God who when he came to us and when we were dead in our sins, he didn't go, here's a pinch of grace. Here's a token of mercy. He took the storehouses from heaven and he poured mercy and grace all over us. How many of you have taken a bath in God's grace, right? Looking like a Pantene commercial, just grace upon grace upon grace. And when that same God lives in our heart, we can't help but have the grace that came to us flow through us. Radical generosity. We are seeing the gospel worked out in our midst because as God's people mature they become more like Jesus this is a cheerful generosity generated not from a third party who is forcing the redistribution of wealth okay this is not a third party forcing them no this is the Holy Spirit compelling them radical generosity church we want to be a radically generous church amen we want to be a church that still does this. We, and we still do this. Like if you're new to East Point and you're like, I don't know how this works. Every week we give and pool our resources. Every week people are donating their hard-earned tithe dollars, whether it's online or, or through the text or through the check giving in the back. Like we pool our resources every week to fund the mission of the gospel. We are funding the advance of the mission. We are funding church planting initiatives every month. We are funding full-time staffers who can equip the saints for the work of ministry. We are even funding what we have is called a benevolence fund. We have a fund where we take a portion of our finances and we set it aside for the express purpose of helping those who need help in our community. And so first and foremost, let me just thank you, church. Like, Seriously, thank you so much. You are worshiping the Lord with your finances. And that's between you and him, right? Like we never ask you for an offering here at East Point. We don't ask you to give to the church. We ask you to give whatever the Lord puts in your heart as an act of worship. So we say it here, hey, this is between you and the Lord, all right? God's taking care of the church, and we have the privilege of being a part of it. So thank you for that. But I also want to say, if any of you in this room are now or ever in a position where you have need, if you're ever in a position and you call East Point Church home where you need the love of the saints in tangible ways, we want to know about that, okay? We have a fund. We have Acts chapter 6 type deacons. And so we want to know. 
so that we can help, right? We love loving for our community. We love helping our community in tangible ways, but especially those of the household of faith. Amen? All right, let's keep going. We got one more trait. You got one more in you? You got one more? You're like, I'm feeling strong. Here we go. All right, verse, I want to point out verse 43 and verse 47. Look what it says. Last one's here. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here's God's community right in front of us, friends. We see number one, it's marked by a relational spirituality. Number two, it's marked by a radical generosity. And number three, it is marked by a missional influence. The church has a missional influence. Outsiders are seeing this community and they are responding with awe. This community is turning heads. Its presence is felt in the community. Its influence is undeniable. The church could not hide right now even if it wanted to. And why would it want to? Just as a blazing torch shines bright and attracts all of the eyes in the room in the night, so too the church is shining and those in the community cannot help but take notice and they marvel. Show me your best marveling face. Let me see it. Wow. Right? Like, they marvel. They understand that something momentous is happening. Right now, me and a few of my discipleship guys were reading through the book of Luke, and I realized this week that's the same word. It says that the community, that great fear came upon them when they saw all these things happening with the babies being born. Great fear, great awe. Same author, author Luke, he's authoring Acts, and he says the same thing just as when Jesus was born, the same reaction as when the church is born. The community goes, wow. Something momentous is happening here. It's not a spectacle. This is an overwhelmingly positive influence, right? This is an attractive sight, not a, oh, that church, okay? Like, let me be, influence, positive influence. It says that they had favor with all the people. They were conducting themselves in such a way that people found it attractive. That people who said, man, I hate God, but I got to give them credit, man. That's cool. Man, I'm not into this whole Christianity thing, but I just got to give props where props are due. Like, that church is doing good work. It is drawing attention. There is an attractive goodness and beauty. Friends, let me say it this way. There is a light that the world could not deny. There's a light that the world could not deny. And here's what happens. Others are being drawn to this light like moth to a flame, right? Others are being drawn to this light and this relational spirituality is just so attractive. And this radical generosity is so distinct. And the way that signs and wonders are being done by the apostles, the way that lives are being transformed miraculously every day, just like when Jesus walked the earth, people are drawn to this beauty. They're drawn to this goodness. And the closer they get to the light, they realize that the source of this beauty was not these people at all. The source of this beauty was the fact that God dwelled in their midst. 
And they realized that what their souls were attracted to the whole time was actually God, the beautiful one, the attractive one. A transcendent God who has made his dwelling with his people. And as they realize that it's God that's drawing them, they too put their faith in Jesus. They too say, what y'all got going on here is so much more beautiful than what I had going on. And so I dare to believe that Jesus can love me too. Baptized. They are now a part of the family of God. Faith. They now are saved and filled with God's spirit. Do you see it, friends? Jesus came to earth on a mission, and we see that in his community, he is continuing that mission, and his church has a missional influence. Well, Jesus, if, if, if you're up there now and not here, how, how are you going to save people? J- Jesus, hey, wait, come back! <laughs> like, if, if you're up there, then who's going to tell them the gospel? Who? How are we going to see the life transformation? How are the blind going to see? How are the dead going to walk? How are people's lives going to be turned around? Excuse me, Jesus. And he sends back the Holy Spirit. He goes, like this. Through you. The missional influence. The church is marked by a missional influence. This is not plan B. This was not Jesus' backup plan because he didn't see the crucifixion happening. It's like, man, three years is all I got. Plan B, the church. Nah, friends, look what he said in Matthew 5. From the beginning, he said, you're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. His plan the whole time was to shine bright through his people so that as people came closer to the flame, they would then be turned up in glory and go, it's God. He is saving people through his church. East Point Church, need I say more? We want to be a missional influence in our community. We want there to be more people who follow Jesus and belong to his family two days from now than today because the gospel is being proclaimed in his community. We want more people in your community. We want more people in your neighborhood. We want more people at your workplace. We want more people at your school hearing the gospel and living for Jesus because of what we're doing here. Sam, don't tell them the secret. It's not a secret. We believe with all of our heart that God is real and that he has saved us and he has brought us into his family and we're in love. We're in love and we don't care who knows it. Tell the world. Tell the world. Look what it says here. I love this, friends, right? Their missional mindset was not reserved for like one special sermon a year. Dude, I grew up in a church where it was called SOS Sunday. Anybody have that? SOS Sunday, it stands for scoot over some. And so the pastor would be like, listen, here's the plan. Next week, I want you guys to invite people. And we're going to be so packed in here that we're going to have to scoot over some, right? And it's, I love that, right? Like, like, what a beautiful reflection of God's heart. That you go, man, we want to be missional. Absolutely. But here's what we're seeing in the church. That's not reserved for one day out of the year. Easter Sunday here, it's kind of like any other Sunday. You know, we're celebrating, no doubt. It's a party, right? It's like a birthday. Like Jesus has risen from the dead. Yes, 
But in terms of our missional influence, we should be doing that every week. You should be living life in such a way through authentic community and a relational spirituality and a radical generosity that every day you are ready to respond to people who say, what's that about? And you say, let me tell you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish. Every day, people were being saved. And then look what it says here, because this is where we're going to end. You, you can't miss this, right? It doesn't say day by day, more and more people had a personal relationship with their Savior. It doesn't say every day, more and more people had a personal yet private relationship with Jesus. Every day, more and more people said the prayer in their own room by themselves, never to be seen again. No, no, no. It says day by day, the Lord added to their number. The way that the church even understood salvation, the way that the early church even talked about being saved, it wasn't marked by the hyper-radical individualism that we have in Christianity in America. It was marked by a community perspective. To be saved is to be added to something. To be in God's family is to join a collective. Let me say it this way. To follow Jesus is to belong to his family. To follow Jesus is to belong to his family. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to have your name written in the book of life, that you are one name on a roll, and you do life with the rest of the people that you roll with on the roll. To belong to Jesus, to follow Jesus, is to belong to his family. And so here are the questions for you, all right? Two questions for you to chew on. Number one, do you belong to God's family? Do you belong to God's family? The Bible is very clear, right? To belong to God's family is to put your faith in Jesus. To literally say, hey, I'm not going to go this way anymore. I acknowledge that the way that I was trying to build my life was not only futile, it was anti-God. Like, it's not the way that God designed it. And so I'm going to turn from doing me, and I'm going to come and do this Jesus thing. And I just want him to save me. And so we turn, and we say, Lord, would you save me? Would you bring me into your family? Would you wipe away my sins and grant me forgiveness and clothe me in the purity of Jesus? And the Bible says, all who come to him in faith, forgiven. Well, Jesus, you know what? I got your back. I'll make sure that I, I'm going to go to church every week for seven weeks, and I'm going to make sure I read my Bible, and I'm going to earn it. And he goes, you couldn't earn it any more than you can scoop out the ocean with a tablespoon. And I love you anyway. Do you belong to God's family? What are you waiting for? Cry out to him in faith. And then here's my second question. For those of you who are in God's family, for those of you who have said, man, I, I, yeah, I, I put my faith in Jesus and I'm not perfect by any means, but I believe. If that's you, here's my question. Are you cultivating God's family? Are you living life with God in such a way that the familial aspect is the norm. God has brought us together. And so are you experiencing the family dynamic? When was the last time, friends, that you had somebody over for dinner and you broke out the bread with glad and generous hearts? 
When was the last time you connected with your community group family and you not only broke out the bread, but you broke down the word? When was the last time you called up that brother or sister on the phone and said, hey, can we just have a prayer together? Are you cultivating the family? Every time that we welcome each other with genuine warmth and love, it is a powerful visual reminder that God has brought us together. Every time you give someone a hug, it's a picture of God's embrace into the family. Every time you sit at the table as a family, it's a reminder that Jesus died to make it possible. Every time you sit on the couch for Bible study and you get there early because you know you want the nook in the corner, right? And you want the throw blanket that's so fuzzy. Or maybe it's just me. But every time you do that, it is a reminder that we are a gospel community to the glory of God. By the Spirit of God within us, let us grow into maturity. Let us grow into people who are catalysts for community. Church, let's live in such a way that we are reminding the world and reminding ourselves that to follow Jesus is to belong to his family. A family marked by a relational spirituality, a radical generosity, and a missional influence. Amen? Amen. Lord, would you change us into maturity? Would you grow us to look more and more like your son who loves people, who values unity, a community marked by warmth and unity and affection because you've made it possible. And then, Lord, I also pray for my friends here who they're just exploring. They're new to this thing and they want to hear what this Jesus thing is all about and why we're so excited Father, I pray that you would save them and add them to our numbers day by day. Not our numbers, your numbers, God. Your growing family movement. Speak to them. Teach them. Open up their hearts and eyes and minds to understand this. Surround them with godly, mature people who can mentor them and show them what this is all about, Lord. But birth faith in their hearts, I pray and ask. Grow this community to your glory, Lord. Not just outwardly but inwardly. We pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.